Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and dynamic women invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is author Rebecca Applin Warner, whose new book is titled The Musical Theater Composer as Dramatist, a Handbook for Collaboration. As frequent listeners of this podcast will have no doubt figured out by now, my primary interest in musical theater is in the storytelling, especially how the book writer, composer, lyricist, choreographer, director, and designers all come together to dramatize that particular musical's story and characters, and then how they bring that first to the page and most importantly to the stage. I firmly believe that every musical, drama or comedy, lives or dies on the strength of its story and the ability of the creative team to tell that story effectively. This book gets right to the heart of all of that with fascinating analysis of how effective musicals are made and detailed case studies that serve as enlightening examples of how to do it. Rebecca Applin Warner is an award-winning composer with extensive experience both writing musicals and teaching in a variety of degree programs in musical theater and performing arts. She has an undergraduate degree in music from the University of Cambridge, a master's in composition for the screen from the Royal College of Music, and a PhD in musical theater analysis. Here we go. Welcome, Rebecca Applin Warner, to Broadway Nation. It's so wonderful to have you here today to talk about your new book, The Musical Theatre Composer as Dramatist. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you, David. You describe yourself in the book as a theatre composer whose main passion is musical theatre. What is it about musical theatre that inspires such passion and that drew you as a composer to it so strongly? I think it's all about storytelling for me. It's all about all of the different elements, the performance modes, 
all working together to tell the story. For me, that's just magic. When the music and the drama and the visual elements all combine, that's where the magic happens. For me, I've been interested for a number of years now in how that kind of alchemy happens, like what that relationship is between all the different performance modes that we use in musical theatre, which is loads. It's a really multimedia genre, which I love. And you yourself are a composer and an educator. That's right, yes. The techniques that you lay out in this book, which we'll talk about as we get to them, you use those in your own work, I'm assuming, and then you also teach those. Yes, that's right. It's grown up over a number of years, really, with doing educational activity in lots of different environments. So in higher education, with university students, and also doing workshops with primary age children and sort of everywhere in between. So it was drawing together over kind of 20 years of practice and what are the kind of key elements that I wanted to draw into a kind of, I wouldn't want to call it a method because that sounds too rigid, but just a kind of series of like a palette of tools that are maybe helpful to reach for. How would you describe this book and who is this book for? I think the book's really for people who are interested in how storytelling in music works within the context of musical theatre. And so originally the idea came from when I was starting to write musicals, I read all of the how-to books, how to write musicals. And usually they stop where I was really wanting composition exercises and to really talk about the nuts and bolts of the music itself. But from there, the scope of the book broadened out really. So it's not just for composers, but for anyone who's interested in storytelling in music and how that might work either when you're analysing a show or it might be for someone who's playing a role and wants to get inside the music of their character or for someone who is indeed creating a musical. You said it's for everybody involved in the collaboration, not just the composers. And of course, collaboration is at the heart of creating musical theatre. Absolutely. And in fact, your subtitle for the book is A Handbook for Collaboration. Talk just a little bit about that, how this book will help making that collaboration work. And collaboration, as we know, is not easy all the time. No. And for me, it really is that key of storytelling. Or everybody involved in a musical, all of us, are there for the storytelling. And that is the glue that binds us all together. I kind of like to think of my practice as being a storyteller, but my medium is music. And somebody else involved in the project will also be a storyteller, but they're like the choreographer. Their medium is dance and movement. And the designer is visual aspects. The last part of the book, which is a series of exercises, I tried to make that they were prompts for exercises and discussions and activities that the whole team can do, the whole creative team. You could do it with a cast as well if you were in an R&D process, or it could be a composer on their own working through them in their studio or wherever they write. I was trying to also use theatre language to talk about music. That's also one of the aims of the book, to move away perhaps from traditional musicological language that's very technically about musicology, but to think about music using theatre language. Well, as you say, one of the challenges of the collaboration is that most of the people in that collaboration will not know musical terms at all. So you have to find a common language to bring people together. Right. And I was thinking about so many of the conversations that I've had with directors and with writers where they'll say to me, I want the music to sound like silver or like using words that are absolutely not within the realm of music. Wind blowing over a wheat field or something. Exactly. Exactly. And I think (laughs) that the large part of the joy of the job is to go, okay, what does winds blowing over a wheat field sound like? So the book is clearly for practitioners, for people involved in creating musicals. But what about theatre fans? Many in the audience for Broadway Nation are a 
obsessed with musicals and love to think about them and analyze them and focus on them 24 hours a day. They're not theater professionals per se. What do you think they can get out of this book? So the book has loads of case studies in it. I draw on lots of examples to talk about. So I think there's about somewhere in the region of 50 musicals that I talk about in the book. So hopefully there's something in there for musical theatre fans as well, if it's about the show that they love or just trying to dig a little bit more into how music means so much to us. Because I think one of the things musical theatre fans love about musicals is how meaningful the music is and how much it touches us. Yeah, and you definitely help us to see inside these musicals, which I think is what listeners of this podcast are so interested in. They want to get inside the musicals. And I think this book absolutely helps us to do that. Thank you. The particular focus of this book, as you put it, is the storyteller that is music. In other words, how the music itself can and should tell the story of a musical, even when the lyrics are taken away. First of all, why is that so important to you? And can you give us some examples of a score that you think illustrates that ideal, I guess? I think it's so important to me because it is the nuts and bolts of my job on a daily basis. So that is what I'm trying to do all the time, is telling the story through music. And it's often struck me when I've been teaching over the years in universities that a student might be writing an essay and analysing a song to talk about a dramatic theme. But in analysing the song, they then might only talk about the lyrics. To me, that misses so much about what the music itself, what the notes are actually doing to also tell that story. And so I guess that's so much a preoccupation of mine because that is my job. That's what I need to do. I think also there's a combination that happens. There's the story of the lyrics, the story of the music, and the story of the music and the lyrics together. And often that creates a really three-dimensional view of what's going on. The music's not necessarily just reinforcing what the lyrics say, it might be telling some subtext of something else. I mean, there's an example of that, albeit not in song, but in Sweeney Todd, where Mrs. Lovett's saying to Toby, oh, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. And then she goes into nothing's going to harm you. And then the dissonant violin strikes up in the midst of that, telling us that's really not what's going on at all. So the music there is doing an additional job to what the lyrics doing. And in terms of scores that do that particularly well, or where it's particularly important, I think my answer to that would be that they all do. I originally trained as a film composer and there we learned that any music will tell you something. There's a great exercise that you can do in film music called commutation, which is where you might take a bit of film and put different musics against it. Each of them will tell you a different story. And I don't think we ever hear music and it not tell us something. Music is always telling a story or some kind of meaning. And so, yeah, it's just about crafting what you maybe want that to be. I've seen those exercises where they apply different music to the score for a movie and it completely changes. It could change like a tragedy into a comedy almost. Absolutely. So those are choices and your book is really about a guide to making those choices. Yes, I think it's a range of tools that help with the terror of the blank page syndrome for any kind of writer where you wake up of the morning and you sit down and you go right I'm starting a musical today and that's just a daunting and terrifying prospect so you have to break it down into the building blocks of where you're going to start. 
Throughout the book, you use various 21st century musicals to illustrate the concepts that you're talking about. Why was it that you focused particularly on musicals written after 2000? I think I wanted to write about things that were fairly current and take a look at what's going on in musical theatre now. I was also interested in writing about shows that maybe have a little less written on them, but purely because they're more recent. And it was also partly to do with shows that I knew students had been interested in as well and, and talking about and the things they were wanting to write on. So I think it was a combination of all of those things. I had to sort of set a container somehow of what was the collection going to be. And so I decided to go down that route. What's well, interesting in terms of this podcast, because just as you said, a lot of the musicals written since 2000 have gotten less coverage in my podcast just because they're the most recent. You know, and to some extent too, have they proved themselves yet? Have they entered the canon firmly? And some of them clearly have and some of them it remains to be seen. So it was really interesting to read a book that was focusing on those most recent shows. You just mentioned building blocks a minute ago, and I think you call them building blocks that can be used to build the construction that is the score of a musical. So first of all, let's look at that. The score, as you see it, is a construction. It's something you have to build, not just be inspired to write. Yes, I do find that a helpful image or metaphor, actually, that it's like being a craftsperson who might work with clay or with wood or you're kind of crafting something. Inspiration is for sure an important part of that but also it's kind of work too. You have to work at it. It's not just inspiration. That might be the kind of initial impetus for it but then it's how do you craft it to do what you want it to do. I think that's so important to emphasize the craft of it and you talk to composers, you talk to lyricists and they will always talk about how hard work it is. And yet the goal is to make it seem like you just whipped it off and it seems effortless. And we know that new musicals can take years to write and develop and you go through a development process with it as well. You'll usually do R&D process and do more rewrite. So you are also often rewriting a lot as well. Definitely that kind of crafting at it as if it was a sculpture that you're sort of gradually chipping away at. The first section of your book explores what you call the language of themes. In this case, are you referring to themes in a literary sense or in a musical sense? Sometimes in my own teaching, that becomes a confusing issue for students. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because we use the word theme in both contexts, that is both potentially confusing, but also really helpful because the point I wanted to make is that it's the kind of symbiosis of those things together. So I am talking about both dramatic and musical ones. And that's kind of the point because I talk about the composer sort of translating from one to another so kind of starting with understanding the dramatic themes and then okay so what does that mean in terms of musical themes and I feel that for everyone on the creative team they're kind of doing a translating job that starts with that storytelling and what those themes are and then as we were saying earlier kind of translating that into whatever their medium is. Part of the purpose of these exercises in this book is to get everybody on the same page in terms of of what are the themes of this musical? Yes, absolutely that, kind of gathering everyone together so you've got a shared sense of purpose and shared understanding of what the story is and what those themes are that you're trying to bring out. And you say that it's fundamental to every member of the team. Why is it so important? 
because I think it's the glue for the whole team in order to all be telling that same story. I think those are the foundational levels of where that comes from. I've been involved with dozens and dozens of new musicals and the ones that succeeded least, I will say that, were the ones where the teams were just not on the same page. Mm -hmm. And that's everybody. That's the writers, the directors, the choreographers. They were doing different shows. Yeah. And they were not aware of it until it was too late. Yeah. And in a way, it gives a lot of creative license for each member of the team to be able to explore all kinds of things with it. But if your foundation is there, then that's great. You can do that without it feeling like it's fracturing and going into lots of different things that aren't related to each other. But those themes are, to me, the glue. You say in the book that composers need to know what dramatic themes are in the show in order to create the musical themes. And some might say, why do they need to know that? Isn't that the book writer's job? to define that? Why does the composer need to do that? No, I don't believe it's solely the book writer's job. I don't think it's solely the composer's job. <laughs> I that, that would be a sort of slightly strange dividing of roles. But I think that's a team decision. All those conversations about what those dramatic themes are, I think the whole creative team do that together. I completely agree. I've stopped talking about the book and only talk about the story because yeah. I always contend that the reason a musical doesn't work is because the story doesn't work and everybody on the team is responsible responsible for the story, not just the book writer. Everybody is telling that story. They must work together to find a successful story to tell. It's similar to, I always ask to be copied in on design sketches and things because they really inspire me into what I'm writing, as to what I'm seeing visually and vice versa. They're telling the story as well. Absolutely. The first section of the book is all about these themes mm -hmm. and analyzing them and helping the reader to figure out how to identify the themes in the show and to focus on them. What are the different kinds of themes that you talk about and the different levels of dramatic themes before we get to musical ones? Yeah. I think throughout the book, one of the features is to do with levels of scale. By that, I mean thinking about something in the overarching sense, so like the whole show. So that, for me, like the top of that structure would be what's the universal theme, so like the main big theme of the whole show, and then kind of going down the layers of scale into, okay, if you've got your universal theme, are there sub-themes that relate to that? Now, this is where the language gets confusing, because then I just call those themes. Then I go down a level again, which gets to motif, which starts to become more typically musical language, I guess. So a motif is probably, for the composer, a kind of a unit of music. And then down to the cell, which again, musically, would be a really small piece of musical material. So, for example, maybe one of the most famous examples of that is the I Wish theme in Into the Woods. I wish in a far-off kingdom more than anything lived a fair maiden a sad young lad I wish and a childless baker more than life I wish with his more wife more than anything more than the moon I wish the king is giving a festival more than life I wish I wish to go to the festival more than riches I wish my cow would give us some milk more than anything I wish we had a child I wish to go to the I festival wish give us a I wish I wish I wish I wish 
Two notes. Yeah, two notes that gets extrapolated into the whole score. That's kind of what I mean by sell. So those scales are kind of helpful for thinking, right, what do we make of the whole show? And then how does that work its way down into the actual notes I'm going to write on a page? I thought that was interesting and very indicative of your whole approach is that you start by talking about dramatic themes and it sort of morphs into musical themes because you've tied them so closely together. Yes, I think that's true. And going back to the idea that theme is the same word for drama and for music and then, yeah. They just crossover. Yeah. So talk about universal theme, the big picture aspect Mm. of analyzing what this show is about. Can you give us some examples in musicals that we would know of what the universal themes that you would identify in this process would be? I think a universal theme is a big topic or a message that usually relates to a certain sense of common human experience. The universal theme is so important because that's what usually touches us on some kind of level because it strikes deep to the shared human experience of what it is to be alive, really. Usually big themes like love or forgiveness or how you move through grief, those kinds of things. So Six, for example, has a universal theme of female empowerment, of the women being able to tell their story. The last five years has a universal theme about the breakdown of a relationship and the devastation felt in the emotional journey of that. And then Hades Town, that has, again, a universal theme about love and trust and a question of sort of who are we when things get tough? What person do we become in that instance? And sometimes I guess you Universal themes do pose questions like that, like who are you going to be? And in Hades Town, literally, who are you going to be when the chips are down is actually in the show. Life ain't easy, life ain't fair. Girls gotta fight for a rightful share. What you gonna do when the chips are down? Now that the chips are down. What you gonna do when the chips are down? Now that the chips are down. Help yourself, help the rest. Even the one who loves you best. What you gonna do when the chips are down? big questions everyone has to ask themselves at some point in their life, which is what makes them universal because they are universally shared by all humans, regardless of their individual situations. Exactly. One of the ones that was interesting, because I often have students identify the themes in the musicals that we're talking about. One that you identify in a couple different shows is identity, which I think mm-hmm. is a new theme to a certain extent. It may be a 21st century theme that has emerged. Billy Elliot is one of the shows I know you talk about in that regard. Yes, I think that's true. I think it is a big question that we have in the 21st century at the moment is about identity and broadening the language with which we talk about identity and and broadening out what our identities can be and to infinite range of possibilities so that we as humans are not confined or constrained in any way. Our identity is so intrinsic. It's who we are. So I think that is something that we are at this point current period in time interested in, yes. As you continue your theme discussion, you bring a tree metaphor into it, which I thought was really useful and interesting. Share that with us. So to me, the themes I was mentioning earlier about the scales, kind of going down from the universal theme to smaller levels of theme, to me, it's helpful to think of them as related to each other. It's not that they're just kind of scattered themes. And so I came up with the idea of the metaphor of probably the universal theme, the main theme being like a tree trunk. And then the 
sub-themes that come off from that are like branches. So they're related to that trunk and they feed into it, but then they also have their own offshoot identity, as it were. Again, it was a helpful metaphor that helped link dramatic themes in that way with musical themes, because you could identify some main trunk musical themes and motifs, and then perhaps the branch themes were in some way musically related. Not necessarily in a way that an audience would notice, but as a composing tool, it really helps you see what musical material it is you're kind of manipulating to then make new themes. And so the score kind of organically starts to grow out of itself. So even at a basic level, the musical themes are offshoots of the dramatic themes. Yes, exactly. So with the trunk themes, and I would say if there's usually one universal theme, then I find I usually have about a handful of other main themes kind of feeding into that. And you can identify usually a kind of key song where a trunk theme might be identified. So, you know, this is the song where that is most clearly explored. And so from that musical material, it might be something like a little bit of the melody might be turned kind of vertically to become a a harmonic sequence or something in a branch theme. You start to be able to play with the trunk material to create branch musical motifs. Fascinating. And the first shall be first and the last shall be last Cast your eyes to heaven You get a knife in the back Nobody's righteous Nobody's proud Don't go away. Rebecca and I will be back with more of our conversation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The next section of your book, you shift to what you call the language of shape. And what exactly do you mean by shape in regard to musical theatre? I like to conceptualise, be it the story or musical phrases, as if they were kind of like a two-dimensional shape. I know that sounds a little bit of a stretch to begin with. But, for example, if you had a musical phrase that was da-da-da-da-dum, then you could imagine drawing a line that went up and then down and then had a little tail back up at the end. You've suddenly got a little two-dimensional shape. And, in fact, the notes on the page do that. Exactly that, exactly. If we go the other way, if that's a really small example and we kind of blow that out, grow that outwards, you can conceive of the shaping of a whole show in that way in terms of how intense you want it to be at any one point. What do you want the emotional journey to be like? I did a lot of work on this that grew out of my reading an article by the musicologist Kofi Agawu who talks about the shape called the dynamic curve and he had related it to classical leader, so classical songs. And he had noticed that most of them had a what's the classic dynamic curve shape is building to a high point at the three quarter mark and then tailing off again. And this was kind of in terms of where the energy was leading to, that it was all moving to this high point and then finding resolution and tailing off. And that's a really basic kind of fundamental shape. But from that same principle, you can do all kinds of things with conceptualizing with those kinds of shapes. And of course, that goes right in hand in hand with dramatic theory, where you have rising action and then a climax and then falling action, all of art is basically, at least performing art, I guess, is following that same curve. Exactly. And it's really interesting to then see if you were to take just the story and draw the shape of that, and you could draw just the shape of the score and like overlay them and see, do they match up? Do you want them to match up? How do the other performing elements redraw that shape? And so it can be a really useful tool. And of course, that shape won't always just be a smooth up and down shape, it will ebb and flow. Part of that you identify is the result of the levels of intensification in the story and in the music, I guess, altogether. What are those different levels of intensification and how does that intensity increase when different storytelling techniques are combined together? Agarwe talks about just the high point. He really focuses on the high point, which I guess we'd normally say, where's the climax in the show? But I started thinking about okay, well, what happens at the other points? As you say, it ebbs and flows. It's not just about it's either high or it's not. And so that got me thinking about in drama, it's all about sort of turning the screw, like raising the intensification and then releasing it, ready to start raising it again and releasing it. And how far you want to raise it to at any one point and where you want to release it and then raise it a bit further or that's all up for grabs. But there are a lot of factors that play into how you raise intensification 
educational and lower it. But one aspect might be to do with the number of performance modes that are kind of stacked together and combined at the same time. Because literally from a sensory perspective, when you're starting to get multiple things coming at you and stacking on top of each other, that raises your sort of heightened awareness on a sensory level apart from anything else. So I think in musical theatre being such a mixed media genre, that is a really important part of it alongside where you're trying to raise the stakes of the drama and lowering them. So there's the performance mode part of it. And then I was also thinking about those other points along with the high point being you've got exposition and you've got development in a dramatic sense and maybe exposition where we're kind of conveying information. Maybe that's a kind of lower point of intensity, maybe developments a little bit more. And then that also finds its musical equivalence in in exposition of laying out themes, in development of, oh, let's kind of work those themes a bit more. And so I think all of these things combine to make uh, shape. Talk a bit more about those performance modes. What are those and how do they work? So I'm using the term performance modes because I also talk about modes of enunciation in the book, which is something different. So by performance modes, I guess I mean dialogue, underscored dialogue, song, dance, visual spectacle. And we gradually introduce more of those together or less at any one time. So there's a diagram in the book where kind of level A is the most naturalistic, just a scene of dialogue, nothing else added. And then you might add underscore to that and maybe that raises it just slightly more. And then naturalistic dialogue might become more formalised words in terms of lyric and the music becomes sung and that sort of raises it a little bit more. Naturalistic movement becomes more formalised in dance and that raises it a bit more. And then you end up where all of these things happen at the same time and that might be creating some form of high point, especially a kind of high point of spectacle where you might have song and dance and visual elements and it, it kind of all going on at once. So the intensity is raised by adding those elements together. That's certainly one aspect of it. Yeah. And certainly that's our experience as an audience. Those are the exciting parts of a musical when it builds to those moments. And by building it literally is adding on levels of performance mode. I thought that was interesting. And that chart is actually interesting. I'll put an image of that in the Broadway Nation Facebook group so everybody can see that. Can you give examples from some of the musicals that you identified when they've hit this high level of intensity by combining these performance modes? I was thinking actually about the jolly holiday sequence in Mary Poppins because it pretty much is that chart that we were talking about. So it starts, they're in the park, naturalistic scene, it's quite grey. That's a picture of the park, isn't it? Why, yes it is. That's not the park, not our park anyway. Look, that tree's a much brighter green and the sky's quite a different... I think you'll find it's just the way I've drawn it. Now, all that it takes is a spark. And then music starts and then there's underscoring to a kind of recitative type singing. So more kind of conversational type singing. And then something as plain as a park becomes a wonderland. All you have to do is look anew. Then you'll understand. That then becomes more song-like. Why? It's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. Oh, really? When the day is grey and ordinary, Mary makes the sun shine bright. Oh, happiness. And then there's some movement from Bert and Mary. 
the daffodils are smiling at the dark. I have the face, Daddy. When Mary holds your hand, you feel so grand. Your heart starts beating like a big brass band. You've enough brass for all of us. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. No wonder that is Mary that we love. Come on, you two. And then there's more conversational singing between Michael and Jane. Just like other nannies thinking, parks are good for us. It's just statues, ducks and grannies. I don't understand all the fuss. Is she doing it to spite us? We could lose a ball. And then the statue comes to life. What is that? You're quite wrong, you know. What? Who are you? I'm Nelius. Surely you know that. And you get underscored dialogue, which in a way releases the intensification just a little bit, because we've got to song, but then we go back to underscored dialogue, that you have to release it to get the bigger build afterwards. Then we get a big musical build. The colours all change, because that sequence starts in grey and then becomes brightly coloured. Ain't it a glorious day, bright as a morning in May? I feel like I could fly. Have you ever seen the grass so green? Or a bluer sky? And then there's more people and you add choral singing. Better days I've never known. You can ask the passing statuary. Nothing's ever set. And then there's ensemble dancing. Then the musical ideas that we've heard all get stacked on top of each other so that you finally end with this climax of everything has built and you've reached that kind of peak of all of the performance modes on top of each other. Come on, everyone, let's go! Rebecca and I will be back next week with the second half of our discussion of the musical theater composer as dramatist, a handbook for collaboration. Here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. 
a donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.